Section 9 of Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Arthur Wing Pinero, Playwright, a study by Hamilton Fife, Section 9. Now the average audience in an English theater likes the heroic in drama. The popularity of the melodrama is due to this taste more than to anything else. The average audience likes to see people performing noble and probable actions. For one thing, these actions remove the play so far outside the realm of reality that the spectator does not have to think much about it either at the time or afterwards. It will not bear thinking about. He is not meant to think about it. The benefit of the doubt does not at all gratify this taste for the heroic, but it does make an audience think. It ran about a hundred nights, which is as much as most really good plays can expect to do. It did not take hold of the average play-going public, nor did it become fashionable. It has never been revived, though it is certainly a play which ought to be acted, and if we had anything in the nature of a repertory theater, would be acted frequently. The opening is quite as clever and even more interesting and entertaining than that of the second Mrs. Tankery. With consummate skill, we learn the whole story up to the point at which the play starts, from the snatches of conversation in the Emtage's drawing room, while the verdict of the divorce court in the action of Allingham versus Allingham, Fraser intervening, is being anxiously awaited. The arrival of successive friends from the court itself keeps the interest strung up to the highest dramatic pitch. By the end of the act, we know the outlines of the characters of all the persons who have been introduced, and the development of the imbroglio is attended with keen expectation. The second act certainly does not disappoint us. Theo, when she has left home after her husband's cold refusal to take her view of their position, goes straight to the man from whom she had got the sympathy which she asked in vain from Fraser of Lachine. Her action is wildly indiscreet, but her intentions are the most innocent in the world. All she wants is to borrow enough money to take her abroad to enable her to join a friend in Paris. At the moment when Allingham receives a note from her asking if he can see her at his Epsom country cottage, he has on the house not only his wife, who has come to see if some reconciliation can be arranged, but also Mrs. Cloyes, Sir Fletcher Portwood, and Claude, who have set off for Epsom as soon as the Ophelia's flight became known. Allingham tells them all what Theo's note says. Mrs. Allingham seizes the opportunity at once. If the relations between Jack and Theo were entirely innocent, and if the judge was right in giving them the benefit of the doubt, let them prove it now. Let Theo be admitted and let her talk to Jack, imagining they are quite alone, while Mrs. Allingham is concealed in the adjoining room. For the sake of peace, Allingham consents. Theo's relatives are bundled into the dining room, Olive takes up her position in the library, and Theo is ushered in. At first, the result of the experiment justifies Ellingham in permitting it. Theo explains her position. Her husband, to whom she looked to stand by her, has failed. He doubts her innocence, and instead of facing the world boldly, he proposes to take her abroad. Therefore, she has done with Fraser Lockheen. You know, she says, there's always a moment in the lives of a man and woman who are tied to each other when the man has a chance of making a woman really, really his own property. It's only a moment. If he lets the chance slip, it's gone. It never comes back. I fancy my husband had his chance today. If he had just put his hand on my shoulder this afternoon and said, You fool, you don't deserve it, for your stupidity, but I'll try to save you. If he had said something, anything of the kind to me, I think I could have gone down on my knees to him and... But he stared at the carpet and held onto his head and moaned out that he must have time, time. 
What Theo says about her friendship with Jack is more than enough to convince Mrs. Allingham, but yet she delays to strike the bell which was to be the sign that she had heard enough. At last Allingham persuades Mrs. Fraser, half fainting as she is, to drink a glass of champagne, and then another. She has eaten nothing all day, she is beside herself with excitement and fatigue, and the wine affects her brain at once. She becomes loud and slangy and confidential as to her future, and then, worked up to a state of delirium, she wildly begs Jack to fly with her. At this moment, her relations, considering that the interview has lasted quite long enough, knock loudly for admittance. Their appearance naturally bewilders Theo, and before she has recovered from this shock, she receives another. Mrs. Allingham reveals herself. Theo understands the plot that has been laid for her, and her mind gives way. As the curtain descends upon the axe, she falls in a swoon at Allingham's feet. It is a situation full of significance, charged with dramatic intensity. The whole act is brilliant in invention and construction, and this scene forms a climax to it that could not be more powerful. It has, however, this one drawback. It makes the writing of the third act in an extraordinarily difficult task. The solution of the problem is found eventually, as I have already indicated, by Mrs. Cloyce, and this solution seemed to many critics to be weak and inconclusive. No play that deals sincerely with human beings can be brought to a conclusive finish unless all the characters are killed off. Nothing in life is ever final, except death, but I cannot see that it is a weak ending. The charge of weakness seems to me to be the direct outcome of the hankering after the heroic, which I remarked upon a few pages back. It is a natural ending. It is just such a compromise as the English nature loves in practice, however much it may prefer, in theory, fireworks and beating of the breast. They are ordinary people, and this is an ordinary expedient for getting them out of their difficulties. One critic, whose appreciations as a rule are of more than ordinary insight and judgment, made complaint of a falling off in the last act, and then wrote as a justification for his discontent, The author has presented his problem, but not even he can offer a satisfactory solution for it. Surely this is to take a wrong-headed view of the play altogether. It is not intended by the author to be either a neatly rounded moral apologue or an ingeniously solved chess problem. The man who could offer a satisfactory solution of any of the real problems of life would be held as a great philosopher or the founder of a new religion. To such criticism as this, Mr. Pinero might well make answer with the king of Israel. Am I God to kill and make alive? All that a dramatist can do is tear you a page out of life. He is not concerned to get his characters out of all the difficulties into which they are involved. He is the holder of no universal pansia for the misfortunes of the human race. You may, if you like, hold the opinion that neither Theo and Fraser nor Mrs. Allingham and Jack could ever live happily together. But you must not imagine that Mr. Panero said or thought they could. He does not pretend to leave them in a way of living happily ever after. He merely closes the particular episode of their history with which his play has been concerned. I have never heard anyone suggest a more natural or a more effective ending, however much they may have disliked the ending conceived by Mr. Panero. And whatever has been urged against the conception, I have never heard anyone deny the skillful treatment of the last act of the benefit of the doubt. The interest is kept up with wonderful dexterity, and though we do not get any further light upon the characters of the four people whose fortunes we follow, yet they all behave as we should expect them to behave, knowing them already as we do. And really, after the two preceding acts, there is nothing more to be done in the way of revealing character. By his daring expedient of the champagne, Mr. Pinero has opened to us the mind and heart even of the complex Theo, a tawdry little person, as I have said, who might seem at first scarcely worth studying even as a specimen of a large but not very interesting class. 
but the dramatist, like the naturalist, can find points of interest in every specimen that he places under the glass. Here, for instance, we have Theo proving to us the eternal truth that between a man and a woman of presentable appearance and of anything like an equal age, there can never exist a friendship which lacks altogether the disturbing element of sex. She and Jack Allingham have imagined honestly that there never was one single thought of anything but friendship on either side. But this something else was there, as it always must be, whether the man and the women know it or not, and they very often do not know it. This may seem incredible to the people who think that all the mysteries of life can be solved by accepting the basest explanations of them. But it is a fact that must be apparent to anyone who has studied human nature as closely, for example, as Mr. Panero has studied it. As soon as Theo is thrown off her balance, the something that has been at the back of her mind emerges into consciousness. The result is her delirious appeal to Jack. Her husband tells her that she was not herself, that the fatigue of the day and the preceding days, the excitement, the wine, had taken away her real personality. She replies truly enough that it was, on the contrary, her real personality which revealed itself. It was myself, the dregs of myself, that came to the top last night. The revelation is a bitter surprise, but it bids fair to leave a lasting effect for good upon Theo's nature. It is, in many a case, a sudden illuminating flash like this which alters the whole course of a life. Of course, the champagne was a block of offense to numbers of people. The sight of a woman affected by alcohol is so terrible and so revolting that the use of such a device certainly ought to be carefully hedged about. But in this instance, the device had a definite purpose to serve, a purpose which could have been achieved by no other means. Further, it was introduced with so careful a hand and in so artistic a spirit that it could not be regarded as offensive by anyone who judged the play as a whole. Interesting as the benefit of the doubt is to read, it must be seen upon the stage to be fully appreciated. Yet it has never been acted in London since its original production in 1895, until we have a theatre which shall form a repertory of pieces and play them all in turn, adding to them gradually as time goes by, we shall be unable to judge fairly the life work of any British dramatist of our time. And not only is the student of a drama a loser by the absence of any machinery for keeping modern plays before the world, the dramatist must be sorely hindered and discouraged as well if his effort is merely to be in nine days' wonder, to occupy the boards for a season, and then to be laid aside and forgotten. How can we expect him to put his best work into it? Must he not trim his sails to catch the passing breeze of popular favor instead of steering such a course as may if his vessel be seaworthy and built to endure, bringing him at last the harbor of lasting fame? For a spirit of any delicacy and dignity, wrote Matthew Arnold in his essay on Gilbert, what a fate if he could foresee it to be an oracle for one generation and then of little or no account forever. But what a vastly more despicable fate to entertain a few hundred theater fools of playgoers and then to pass out of mind. How can the theater expect to attract to its service a sufficient volume of talent to furnish forth a modern English drama? Mr. Pinero has done his part well in face of discouragement, but one dramatist cannot make a school any more than one small stream can irrigate a wilderness. Of Sir Fletcher Portwood, I have said a word or two, but not enough to do justice to one of the most comical portraits Mr. Pinero has drawn in any of his plays. Sir Fletcher is a perpetual joy. His cheery self-assertion and pomposity are hit off to the life. What a delicious scene that is in which he explains the true inwardness of his niece's acquittal. Mrs. Twelves. It has been awfully reassuring to see you beaming in court, Sir Fletcher. Sir Fletcher. Ha! I dare say my attitude has been remarked. Beaming, why not? I've had no doubt as to the result. Mrs. Twelves. No doubt of Theo's innocence. Of course not. Sir Fletcher. Innocence, that goes without saying, my niece. But the result, in any case, would have been much the same, I venture to think. Mrs. Twelves. Really? 
Sir Fletcher. You see, my own public position, if I may speak of it. Mrs. Twelves. Oh, yes. Sir Fletcher. Smiling. And I happen to know the judge, slightly perhaps, but there it is. Mrs. Twelves. But the judges are not influenced by considerations of that kind. Sir Fletcher. Heaven forbid I should say a word against our method of administering law in this country. The House knows my opinion of the English judicial bench. At the same time, judges are mortal. I have never concealed that from myself, and Sir William and I have met. To Claude. You saw the judge look at me this morning, Claude. Claude. Now? Sir Fletcher. No. Oh, yes, and I half smiled in return. Yesterday I couldn't catch his eye, but today I have been half smiling at him all through the proceedings. Again, Sir Fletcher's fussy anxiety in the last act to arbitrate between the husbands and the wives is vastly entertaining. He is a recognizable figure in modern life, this respectable non-entity who began to apply the lever to the mountain at an early age, and who ends with a seat in Parliament and a knighthood. Thus, he is not only amusing, but a valuable record of a contemporary type. Claude Emtage is very humorously sketched and also and is equally true to life. He has all his uncle's sense of self-importance without the pushing energy which has made Sir Fletcher's position. All through the play, one is struck by Mr. Pinero's knowledge of stage effect and of the thousand little ways in which a dramatist can keep his audience interested and in good humor. Even when he introduces a servant for no more than a moment, he can contrive to suggest character and to create amusement without hindering the development of the plot or deliberately turning aside to be funny. Consider the manservant Quaife, for example. His wife is exceedingly healthy for a stout person. The boy is not ready to carry bags to the station, but he can be worried till he's ready. This may be called the mint and anise and the cumin of playwriting, scarcely worth mentioning in comparison with the weightier matters of the dramatist's art. But it all has its effect in building up a solid impression and creating an atmosphere of reality. There will, to revert for a moment to the main current of the play, be always people who shrink from looking upon the petty tragedies of life with a satirist eye. Such people, while they are filled with admiration for the profligate and the second Mrs. Tankery, find in the benefit of the doubt a flavor that grates upon their palate. The same people would no doubt call Thackeray cynical, as the fashion goes in words. They would avow their liking for plays either avowedly comic and light-hearted, or else cast her out in a serious mold. But they forget that life is a tangled web, good and ill together, serious and comic elements inexorably interwoven, and that often we know not whether to laugh or to cry at the fantastic tricks of our fellow creatures. Merely to laugh at the troubles of the Frasers and the Allinghams would be to bring our merriment under the sentence of Solomon. T'would be but the crackling of thorns under the pot. And yet to deal in a tragic spirit with Theo and her husband would be to dignify them unduly, and would point a faulty perspective in a dramatist's mental picture of life. They have their moments of exaltation, as Becky Sharp and Rodden, for example, have theirs. Rodden rises to moral grandeur when he flings the jewel at Lord Stane. Every now and then Becky reveals some trait that seems to put her whole character on a higher plane. We forget Theo's tawdry nature when she falls senseless after realizing the full extent of her half-delirious indiscretions at the Epsom Cottage, but it showed a just estimate on Panero's part of the theme dealt with in the benefit of the doubt that he treated it in the vein of satire. He lost nothing of the humanity of his characters, nothing of the interest of their story. He tore a leaf out of the book of the age. He exhibited at once his surpassing skill as a maker of plays and the fruits of his labor as a student of human character. In both these respects, the notorious Mrs. Ebsmith fell short of the benefit of the doubt. The first two acts and half of the third are written with a firm grip upon reality and a keen literary instinct as well. 
But after that, the play falls to pieces. The lesser characters are exceedingly well sketched in. The Duke of St. Alfred's is drawn in a vein of literary sarcasm. But he is true in essence and also very amusing. The English parson is, contrary to the custom of our stage, not in any way exaggerated or held up to cheap ridicule. His sister, Mrs. Thorpe, is a woman who, in the hands of most playwrights, would have been a prig. As it is, she is sympathetic, natural, lovable. The persons who merely appear and disappear have each a subtle flavor of individuality. In 1895, Ibsen had begun to be generally recognized in this country as a master of dramatic craft, and the notorious Mrs. Ebsmith shows more than any other of the plays the influence of Ibsen, and especially the influence of Ibsen's studies in femininity. Even Mrs. Thorpe's fancy about her little boy's grave, You know, I still tuck my child up at night time, still have my last peep at him before going to my own bed, and it is awful to listen to these cold rains drip, drip, drip upon that little green coverlet of his. Even that reminds us of Agnes and Brand, placing her candle in the window so that its light may fall across the snow on her boy's grave and give him a gleam of Christmas comfort. But the scene in which Agnes hurls the Bible into the stove and then snatches it away is very far from the method of the Norwegian master. Nothing in the character of Agnes has prepared us for it, nor does the ending of the play seem any more natural. If Agnes had ever been convinced that she was grievously wronging Mrs. Lucas Cleave by keeping Lucas away from her, she would have surely gone back to her old lonely life. Women of her temperament do not fall back upon the consolations of religious faith because they have never found in religion anything to console them. It is true that Agnes's sex has found her out, as she says in One Direction, but there is no reason to suppose that, because a thwarted instinct takes its revenge, the mental habits of a lifetime would give place to an attitude of mind to which she had never been anything but a complete stranger. There is nothing wonderful in the mutual confession of Theophilia and Jack Allingham that, in their distress, they have gone back to the habit of prayer, for with them praying or saying their prayers had once been a habit, and the mind slips back easily, under stress of pain or deep emotion, into grooves that have been formed in the impressionable early years of life. But Agnes Ebsmith's father believed in nothing that people who go to church are credited with believing in, and he brought her up to take his view of existence and of the world around her. When she cries out that she had trusted in the Bible and clung to it, and that it failed her, we feel that this must be some other woman who has strayed into the piece in order to help the author towards a striking finish to his third act. This is not the Mrs. Ebsmith we have known up to this point, and we are sorely disappointed, for up to that point Mrs. Ebsmith has aroused our intense interest and has seemed to be the finest, most complex study of womanhood under the conditions of today that Mr. Pinero, or any other modern playwright, has drawn for us. In essence, the notorious Mrs. Ebsmith enforces the same lesson as the benefit of the doubt, the lesson that a platonic relation between a man and a woman is impossible for nine out of every ten women and for ninety-nine out of every hundred men. The lesson is, of course, weakened a little from one side by making Lucas so poor a creature, but this, on the other hand, puts the woman's infatuation in a more striking light. Again, if the man in the case had been drawn as an exception to all ordinary rules in the opposite sense of Lucas, he would have been railed at as unnatural, and also, there would have been no play. Even as it is, there is scarcely a complete play, for such a subject cannot be fully discussed before a mixed theater full of men and women of all ages. It is not, therefore, I think, quite a suitable subject for drama under present conditions. When Agnes resolves that if she cannot keep Lucas by her side in her way, she will descend to his level and hold him by the power that all women can exercise over men, enough is said to leave half of the spectators mystified and the other half uncomfortable. Yet the situation is not really made clear for the reason that it must remain obscure without the addition of what has to be left unsaid. 
It is really the whole mystery of the sex relation that we are invited to ponder. This is too large a subject for the theater to tackle all at once in its present stage of development. For this reason, however, the notorious Mrs. Ebsmith, with all its defects as drama, is more stimulating to thought than any other of Mr. Panero's plays. Just because it casts into the arena of discussion a subject so important to nearly all the men and women in the world, it gives us fruitful matter for reflection, a mental cud to chew for as long as we choose to let our minds work upon it. Agnes tried to persuade herself that she was one of the exceptional women to whom this subject is unimportant. The process of her undeceiving provides the stuff of drama. When she finds out that this weak, vain, egotistical Lucas has no idea of finding in her merely an intellectual comrade, a spiritual affinity, does she at once renounce their compact of partnership? Her head resents the intrusion of the flesh-and-blood element, but her heart holds her back from any attempt at renunciation. Lucas's feeling towards her is the outcome of passion. She has learnt to love him with the self-denying tenderness that seeks rather to offer service than to extract gratification. The greatest sacrifice that a woman like Agnes can make is the sacrifice of her convictions and ideals. Her love for Lucas persuades her to throw them over at the very first thought of the possibility of her losing him. The Duke of St. Alfords verifies, in his brutally frank manner, the impression of Lucas's character which has been gradually forcing itself upon Agnes. She sees that there is nothing for it but to surrender her own and to accept Lucas's standpoint. She is not the woman to be content with half measures. Her mind is made up quickly and she acts at once upon her determination. The dress that Lucas has ordered for her comes into her thoughts. Only an hour before she had expressed her disgust at the idea of wearing it and recollect her conversation about it with Lucas. Agnes, and when would you have me hang this on my bones? Lucas, oh, when we are dining or... Agnes, dining in a public place? Lucas, why not look your best in a public place? Agnes, look my best? You know I don't think of this sort of garment in connection with our companionship, Lucas. Lucas, it is not an extraordinary garment for a lady. Agnes, rustle of silk, glare of arms and throat. They belong in my mind to such a very different order of things than that we have set up. An hour afterwards, she has realized clearly the only condition upon which she can hold Lucas to her. It revolts her to submit to it, but she has no choice. She puts on the dress that has aroused her scorn. She transforms herself from a dowd into a beautiful woman. The effect upon Lucas is immediate. At first, he cannot understand the sudden alteration in her appearance. Lucas, why? What has brought about this change in you? Agnes, what? Lucas, what? Agnes, I know... Lucas, you know? Agnes, exactly how you regard me. Lucas, I don't understand you. Agnes, listen, long ago in Florence, I began to suspect that we had made a mistake, Lucas. Even there, I began to suspect that your nature was not one to allow you to go through life sternly, severely, looking upon me more and more each day as a fellow worker, and less and less as a woman. I suspected this. Oh, proved it, but still made myself believe that this companionship of ours would gradually become, in a sense, colder, more temperate, more impassive. Beating her brow, never, never, oh, a few minutes ago this man, who means to part us if he can, drew your character disposition in a dozen words. Lucas, you believe him? You credit what he says of me? Agnes, I declared it to be untrue, oh, but... Lucas, but... but... Agnes... The picture he paints of you is not wholly a false one. Shh, 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 Lucas. Hark, attend to me. I resign myself to it all, dear. I must resign myself to it. Lucas. 
resign yourself? Has life with me become so distasteful? Agnes. Has it? Think, why when I realize the actual conditions of our companionship, why don't I go on my own way stoically? Why don't I go at this moment? Lucas, you really love me. Do you mean a simple tender woman are content to love? She looks at him, nods slowly, then turns away and droops over the table. He raises her and takes her in his arms. My dear girl, my dear cold, warm-hearted girl, ha! You couldn't bear to see me packed up in one of the Duke's traveling boxes and borne back to London, eh? She shakes her head. Her lips form the word no. No fear of that, my, my sweetheart. Agnes, quick, dress, take me out. I won't oppose you. I won't repel you anymore. It is a powerful, pitiful scene, this. It is the tragedy of the exceptional woman's life. Few women, luckily for themselves, luckily for the continuance of the human race, are born like Agnes Ebsmith. There are two ways of love, the man's and the woman's, though sometimes we see the positions reversed. The woman, masterful, passionate, the man, patient, tender, serviceable. But the two ways and their extremes are seldom brought to clash so violently as they are in the case of Lucas Cleave and Agnes Ebsmith. Seldom is so complete a sacrifice of inclination and ideal called for as that which this scene presents to us. This is a tragedy in itself. This surrender of the higher nature to the lower, the failure of a strong soul to escape from the common burdens of humanity. But there is an even more poignant sequel. For no sooner has the sacrifice been offered than Agnes finds that has been ineffectual as a means of binding more closely to her the man who pretends to love her, who honestly believes that he loves her, so low is his conception of the tie that means so much to her. A proposal was made that he shall consent to a feigned reconciliation with his wife in order that her position may be regulated and that he may resume his political career. His relations with Agnes are to continue as little changes need be, but the situation is to be saved in the world's eyes and a scandal avoided. Of course, Agnes expects that Lucas will repudiate this degrading suggestion with anger and contempt, but the wretched creature shows only too evidently that he would grasp at it if he dared. This is the final disillusioning touch, and unfortunately it is here that we get our final glimpse of the real Mrs. Epsmith in Mr. Panero's play. We can all form our own notions of the further development of the situation at which we have arrived towards the close of the third act. Of one thing we may feel, I think, certain, that the end which Mr. Panero gave us is neither likely nor convincing, and that nothing in the play has prepared us for so strange and seemingly unnatural conclusion. Even Mrs. Thorpe startles us towards the end of the third act with a sudden declaration that she too had an unhappy married life. A declaration which was perhaps needed in order to lead up to the Bible-burning episode, but which is so unexpected as to be almost laughable. One cannot but feel that the agony of unfortunate marriages is being piled up a little too high. It is a thousand pities that a drama of sincere analysis and great power, such as we find in the earlier part of the play, should remain merely a torso, a fragment, instead of growing under the dramatist's hand into a coherent and satisfying finished work of art. End of section 9